The great lie of sin is that it offers happiness and fulfillment. The truth is that the more sin is indulged, the more misery one can expect to follow in its wake. In some inexplicable way, sin enlarges the self-life. And the greater the self-life, the more sin is desired. This whole process is a cruel hoax concocted by the devil himself. If I could just have my own way, then I would be happy. If I could go my own way, do my own thing, call my own shots, have things my way, that would be the life. Sound right? Well, that's what our culture says. But the Word of God does not agree. That is the way that seems right to a man, but that way leads not to life, but to death. Today, we'll see what living for self really brings. I'm your host, Jim Lewis, and this is Purity for Life. The men who come to Pure Life Ministries residential program all experience it. It's that moment when they realize that their problem isn't what they thought it was. They knew they had a sexual sin issue. What they didn't know was that something else lay behind it that they never saw. Steve Gallagher leads off with one of his 20 truths. The root of sexual addiction probably isn't what you think it is. Okay, truth number 10. The root of sexual addiction probably isn't what you think it is. In the first segment, I mentioned that the home I was raised in was dysfunctional. The definition of that word is simply that something doesn't operate as it should. Most of the problem was that my father was extremely self-centered and simply lacked the capacity to love others. I suppose it was that lack of love in our home that helped create the cavernous void in my heart. And I did the same thing countless others have done. I tried to fill that void with the things of this world. Of course, a healthy home is built upon the solid foundation of affection and discipline, two aspects of love that were sorely lacking in my home. My dad's lack of affection caused a breach in our relationship, which he tried to make up for by buying me things. And rather than disciplining me in a consistent and predictable manner, he would ignore my rebellious attitude until he got irritated. Then he would lash out in ugly anger. I sought solace in things, and it didn't take me long to figure out how to avoid his temper and how to manipulate him into buying me what I wanted. As a child, I lusted for the latest toys that were coming out. But as I reached my teen years, the main focus of my striving transitioned from possessions to experiences, meaning 
drugs, excitement, and sex. What I didn't realize at the time was that this demand that I get everything I wanted was causing me to become increasingly selfish and self-centered. Eventually, sexual sin became the great passion of my life. The daily fare of softcore porn and masturbation kept me locked in a prison of self where no one else could intrude. My natural knack for seducing girls allowed me to selfishly use them and dump them when I was done with them. But it was my discovery of hardcore pornography that sent me into such obsessive behavior that I came to the place of bordering on the edge of insanity. It was self-centeredness that led me into sexual addiction in the first place, and pursuing the sin only exacerbated my selfishness. While sexual sin was the primary focus of my attention, there were other aspects to life as well. But whatever I did in life, it was always done with a me-first attitude. I went after whatever I wanted with little regard to how it might affect other people. I wanted what I wanted, when I wanted it. And if anyone stood in my way, I became irritated or even angry. Interestingly, the more I got what I desired and the more things went the way I wanted them to go, the more miserable I became. The more I gave the beast of self what it demanded, the greater it became within me. My life eventually came to the point where it was one black mass of self. There was no room for anyone else. Self demanded and received nearly everything it wanted. C.S. Lewis once said that we must picture hell as a state where everyone is perpetually concerned about his own dignity and advancement where everyone has a grievance, and where everyone lives the deadly, serious passions of envy, self-importance, and resentment. And the selfishness that that statement depicts pretty much sums up the hell that my life became. The great lie of sin is that it offers happiness and fulfillment. The truth is that the more sin is indulged, the more misery one can expect to follow in its wake. In some inexplicable way, sin enlarges the self-life. And the greater the self-life, the more sin is desired. This whole process is a cruel hoax concocted by the devil himself. Well, I eventually became a Christian, but unfortunately I brought this same me-first mindset into the church with me. It took me quite a while before I came to understand that God's kingdom is built in selflessness not selfishness. It is founded on humility, not pride. Roy Hessian said, it is so often self who tries to live the Christian life. It is always self who gets irritable and envious and resentful and critical and worried. It is self who is hard and unyielding in its attitude to others. It is self who is shy and self-conscious and reserved. No wonder we need breaking. As long as self is in control, God can do little with us. People imagine that dying to self makes one miserable, but it is just the opposite. It is the refusal to die to self that makes one miserable. The more we know of death with him, the more we shall know of his life in us. And so the more of real peace and joy. Yeah, he really nailed it. 
The Christian only comes into the blessings of God as he allows the Lord to break him of his self-life. One day I got to thinking about how true the Beatitudes are, but also how the reverse of each Beatitude is equally true. I'll go through them and I think you'll get what I'm talking about. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And I would add, miserable are those who are full of themselves. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. And I would add, miserable are those who strive after temporal happiness. Jesus said, blessed are the meek. And I would add, miserable are the self-willed who always want their way. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I would add, miserable are those who are indifferent and apathetic to the things of God. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful. And I would add, miserable are the self-centered who never reach out to meet the needs of others. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. And I would add, miserable are those whose hearts are full of idols. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. And I would add, miserable are those troublemakers who cause division. You see, the world and our carnal natures lead us to believe that the more we insist on having our way in life, the happier we'll be. And they want us to think that the more possessions we acquire and the more pleasure we experience, the more satisfied we'll be. But God teaches us another way. The more we love and obey God, the deeper our joy will be. And the more we give ourselves away for the sake of others, the more fulfilled we will feel. Attempting to combine a self-centered existence with Christianity simply doesn't work. And those who insist on trying to make it work are only deceiving themselves. This was one of the great lessons I desperately needed to learn in life. And it was as I started to overcome the tyranny of self that I began to find true freedom at last. My days of pursuing pleasure and insisting on having my way about everything are over. But you know what? So are those days of misery that were always a part of that selfish lifestyle. So now you know that the real issue is not the addiction. That's just the outward fruit of an enormous self-life. If you have a sexual sin problem, it's because you're the center of your own universe. Self-life is a term that was very popular a hundred years ago and not much spoken of in the church today, but there's not another term that describes it nearly as well. In this segment from our archives, Brooks Popwell asks Pastor Ed Book to give us a thorough rundown on what the self-life is so we can better understand what we're facing. Well, Pastor Ed, we're dealing with another overlooked factor in battling sexual sin, and that's the self-life. This is a term we use a lot at PLM, but maybe a lot of people haven't heard this word before. So when I think of this word self-life, to me it kind of suggests the idea of selfishness. And is being selfish what we really mean when we're talking about the self-life, or is it something more? 
Well, Brooks, I would define the self-life as really just what the terms self and life suggest. It's living for self, pursuing what I want, living by my feelings, living for my pleasures, a me-first attitude. It's me at the center of everything. And I would say that that means it's something more than mere selfishness. So living for self isn't just, you know, some character flaw or weakness, like someone who has a tendency to act in a selfish manner toward others. It's a pervasive mindset and a lifestyle that we've come into and adopted. And what really defines it, honestly, is that inward flow where everything is geared to benefit me and fulfill my desires or expectations. And that inward flow is the exact opposite of the outward flow that Jesus taught us. You know, another common Christian word I'm reminded about as we discuss this is the word pride. Is pride the same thing then as the self-life perhaps? Well, not exactly. Uh, Pride is essentially thinking highly of myself or taking pleasure in who I perceive myself to be. Uh, So pride sustains the self-life, if you can picture that. Pride feeds my self-life by keeping the focus on me, keeping my own focus on me. And it also protects my self-life. It's very much like a watchdog that guards and protects the self-life. So if anyone gets between me and my self-image or my carnal desires, they're almost certainly going to be attacked by my pride. I guess I would say it like this. Pride and selfishness are indicators that I have a strong self-life, whereas humility and being others-oriented would be indicators that someone has really learned to deny self and to nail self to the cross where it really belongs. All right, so you've given us a couple of the overall aspects of this, this outward flow versus an inward flow. Can you just describe in more concrete detail the life of a typical addict? Because I know this sex, the sexual sin, obviously, and the other parts of like this inward flow, those things take a specific shape in someone's life, right? Yeah, absolutely, Brooks. I mean, if, if we think just in terms of, of a typical sex addict for a minute, uh, let's talk about his job because most of them are probably employed in some measure, but the job is just a means to an end for them. They're there for the paycheck. They're really not very invested, and they probably are doing a lot of personal things on company time, uh, maybe even looking at pornography while they're supposed to be working, that sort of thing. Uh, a lot of Sex addicts are in a double lifestyle, so he may well attend church, but it's probably the bare minimum, and there's no personal devotion life behind any of that. It's just a duty, an obligation that gets performed occasionally once a week or thereabouts. Uh, And on the family side, it really probably shows up there more than anywhere because uh, that's the people he's supposed to be closest to, but in reality, he's become disconnected from his family and probably holds them at arm's length even with uh, a measure of anger, maybe even unpredictable anger that keeps them from interrupting or intervening in his pursuit of self uh, of his self-life. And um, he's probably full of excuses why he can't uh, fulfill his responsibilities to his wife or his children in some measure, maybe even financially. And uh, in general, I would just say it like this. He's probably maximizing his time alone so he can literally give himself over to his selfish desires. Well, it's not a pretty picture. 
No, it isn't, Brooks. But I want to say that there is hope for this person. He can truly turn around. He can really take heed to some of the things we're talking about here today and begin to dismantle that self-life. Okay, I think I'm understanding this whole concept a little better. Let's link it back now to our overall goal of getting victory over sexual sin. Why is dealing with this self-life so important if we want victory? Well, the simple answer, Brooks, is that the self-life is the root system that has produced the fruit of sexual sin in a person's life. So if you want to get rid of that fruit, you really do have to deal with the root system. That does seem to make sense. Let me take an alternative point of view for a second, though. I know there's just so many strategies and forms of treatment out there for sexual addiction, and a lot of them really don't mention anything about the self-life or anything like that. So are you really saying that it's impossible to stop committing sexual sin without addressing this issue? And if someone could theoretically quit sexual sin without dealing with the self-life, then why focus on it at all? Well, I, I think it's true that for anyone who's been addicted to any form of sexual sin, in, including masturbation, by the way, that dealing with the self-life is essential for lasting victory. Lust is part of that inward flow I mentioned earlier. So lust is taking, it's gaining something for self. And if I'm going to overcome lust, I need to develop the outward flow. I must learn to be uh, literally a giver instead of a taker. And as that transformation takes place, I'm literally having my, my self-life dismantled. And frankly, Brooks, the, the way to victory over sexual sin isn't to deal with the sexual sin like so many might presume. It's to deal with the root system, the self-life. All right. Well, if someone is ready to start dealing with that, can you help us understand what are some of the basic aspects of that process, dismantling the self-life? Sure, Brooks. It really has to always begin with a relationship with the Lord. Uh, the self-life has to be crucified ultimately, but that will never happen until I first develop a genuine relationship with the Lord. And by that, I mean a relationship that's continually growing through a vibrant devotional life, through prayer, Bible study, and just communion with the Lord and, and seeking him in all the spiritual disciplines that are laid out for us in Scripture. And another key part of that would be uh, having people in our life that uh, we've given a place, a, a permission, so to speak, to speak into our lives, to call us out on our unchristlike behaviors. And beyond that, then, we need to look uh, to what the Bible clearly teaches. Jesus said that we are to deny self, then take up our cross and follow him. So self-denial and self-control are the biblical mandates that we're given to deal with our self-life. What that means in practical terms is that you're literally engaging in a putting off and a putting on process, um, a process where you're tackling the behaviors that are springing up and flowing out of your self-life and literally putting off or divorcing yourself from those behaviors, eliminating all of those behaviors ultimately. And in fact, Brooks, Romans 8.13 comes to mind because the Bible uses a phrase in that verse about mortify or put to death the deeds of the flesh. And also in that verse makes it very clear that it's the Holy Spirit who has to play a key role in helping us do that. This isn't something we're able to do in our own strength. And so in that putting off, 
process. There, the other side of it is a putting on process where we're learning and ad- uh, adopting the behaviors that are Christ-like that need to take the place of our former deeds. And let me hasten to add, Brooks, that that's a lifelong process. I, I don't want to mislead people about that. Yeah, you know, that was what I was going to ask you next was, realistically speaking, with the men that you counsel, you see this then playing out on, you know, months and even sometimes for some aspects over maybe even years of their life? Well, uh, in some ways, yes, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I would hope that the sexual sin in itself would fall off long, <laughs> early on in the process. But uh, certainly when it comes to putting on Christ-like behavior, that is a tremendous uh, undertaking that I'm still, after 14 years of victory over sexual sin, I'm still pursuing the putting on process, absolutely, and, and in some measure the putting off process. I'm, I have not arrived, but I know where I'm headed, and the Lord is uh, able to get us to a place where our victories are uh, more the pattern of our life than our failures. Well, are there other changes that somebody can expect to begin happening in their life as they start to deal with the self-life? And if so, what are those? Well, Brooks, the bottom line is that the person is becoming more Christ-like. So the works of the flesh are being overcome and are disappearing from his life. The fruit of the Spirit, uh, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all of those things are becoming increasingly evident. And as a result uh, of that transformation taking place, there is a peace with God that's unlike anything you've ever experienced before. There is actually a true oneness with the Lord developing between you and him. Yeah, I I can tell this is something you've experienced yourself, this transition, right? Give us a little more idea for you what that's meant. Sure. That oneness that I'm trying to describe, Brooks, that actually shows up in my relationship with the Lord, in my quiet times, in my devotional time with him. They're so much more alive, and I'm connected, and I know that I'm connected. So there's something really meaningful happening that draws me in and makes me look forward to them. Uh, so I'm not in engaging in some duty or some obligation or just some dry time with the Lord. Now, don't get me wrong. It's, I'm not saying it's always, you know, peaches and cream, but uh, there certainly are times when it's a little more like oatmeal. But uh, but by and large, there's something happening between me and the Lord, a connection that is drawing me closer to him and making it easier to engage with him. And along with all of these things, there's that indescribable joy that I've got now that comes from being in a place where my inside world and my outside world are actually the same. I'm not having to exert all my energy trying to uh, pretend to be something I'm not or someone I'm not. I'm at rest, literally inside. I am at peace and rest. Uh, I'm no longer driven by those carnal desires that I once was. And the end result of everything I've just mentioned is an incredible feeling of freedom that I can't even begin to put into words for you. But it's real and it's lasting and it's wonderful. Everywhere our culture screams the message of me-centeredness. This message has overtaken the church. 
People now shop for churches like they shop for a new appliance, asking only one question. What do they have for me? A me-centered approach to life is a contradiction for the Christian who is supposed to be living for Christ and others. It has serious, if not eternal, consequences. Jordan Yoshimine is Assistant Director of Counseling at the Residential Program here at Pure Life and part of the Senior Leadership Team. We're teaching in this episode the truth that the root cause behind a man who is addicted to pornography or engaged in some other form of sexual sin is that he has an enormous self-life. He is the center of his own little universe. We asked Jordan to speak about a particular lie that is prevalent in the church today because it is everywhere in our culture. And the myth today that we're talking about is I can have my own life in this world and be a Christian as well. I really believe that that is a complete lie from the devil. Um, and it's dragging people uh, and good people, good professing Christians to hell um, because they don't know any better. They're just going along with the flow of um, what's happening in the church today. They're going to church and and really experiencing God in a way that God did not intend them to worship. Something is terribly wrong in the church today. When over half of all married men in the evangelical church are in some kind of sexual sin and nearly 80% of young men view porn regularly, the church is no longer the spotless bride of Christ. She's an adulteress. We are no better than Israel, playing the harlot by pursuing our idols. Jordan shows us that the problem is clearly taught in Scripture. You know, the church, as God intended, was supposed to influence and change the world. And what we're finding today is that the world is coming into the church and influencing the church. And uh, as I said before, that's just not scriptural. You know, the, the, in Scripture, it says, and I'll, and I'll quote Matthew 10, 39, whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. And throughout Scripture, in Mark, and Luke, and John, all four Gospels use this passage as, as, as a significant words of Jesus himself saying, listen, you're going to have to lose your life in this world. In Luke 9.23, it says, we need to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow the Lord. But it says, die daily. We need that daily death to self. And what's happening in the Christian church today is, and being promoted really, is that, hey, you can be a Christian, but have everything that you want in this life as well. We live in a me-centered culture. It has infected our core beliefs and what we regard as sin. In the area of sexuality, now anything and everything goes. You can just see it in, in laws that are being passed in the cultural shift in sexuality 
Um, it's all about self, and it is all about pleasing self. It is all about, hey, what's good for you may is all right as long as it doesn't Im- impact me. You can do what you want. Um, I I encourage that. Whatever you want to be, what however you want to dress, whatever sexuality, sex that you want to be, hey, it's and it permeates. What's unfortunate is it's permeating the church. And what is the result of this extreme self-centeredness? What happens when you can't tell a Christian by his lifestyle from his unsaved neighbor? Jesus prayed that his disciples would not come out of the world, but they would be protected from its influence. Both James and John warned that being a friend of the world makes us an enemy of God. What happens? when the idolatry of this world takes over our lives. Jesus told us. Matthew 16, 26, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in in exchange for his soul? And, you know, I think a lot of times we think that verse applies to people who are not Christians. But I think really, you know, it's talking to believers. It's like, hey, what what is it going to profit you if you marry yourself to the world and you're going to lose your soul? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that is a good question because the consequences in a lot of cases are not easily seen. And that's what's so dangerous, I think. It's like people go to church, uh, they sit in a pew, they tithe. They're in a Bible study or a small group during the week, and yet are married to the world in, in, in certain areas of their life. They've given themselves over to things that, to, the, to anyone else or to a, a non-believer, unbeliever, would not look like sin. But they've just given themselves over to extravagant vacations or um, avid sports fans where their whole living room or dining room or or den or family room is completely committed to a college team or a professional team. Um, and it's really what's what happens is there's idolatry um, that pops up in their hearts. It's like they're professing to be Christians. They're, they're doing all the things that it takes to look like a Christian or to say that they're a Christian. Um, but then you look, take a hard look at their lives and you see the idolatry in their lives. Um, you know, I mean, it just says very clearly in Exodus 20, I think it's verse 3, you know, that shall not have any gods before me. And really they've, um, before even God, they'll, they'll skip Sunday service to watch uh, the World Series or the Super Bowl or golf or whatever it is, um, even idolizing their um, children and their events. Hey, I'm going to skip church because my son has a soccer game today. And placing higher importance on, um, hey, my kids have um, a game on Wednesday night, uh, so we're not going to go to church or we're not going to go to small group this week because my my son has a soccer game. So it's placing these um, things that look to anyone else like, nothing, but it is idolatry. And God specifically commands that we don't put anything before God. 
And those things, you know, cumulatively over a lifetime, man, I, you know, I don't want to be standing in front of God on judgment day. And, you know, it says uh, in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, 24, um, you know, Lord, Lord, did I not do all these things in your name? Did I not cast out demons? Did I not prophesy in your name? And God's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. And I think that's the danger in today is that consequence of allowing, you know, the world into the church and saying you can have both is that people are <laughs> stand in front of Jesus one day and he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. And and people are going to be grieved because they they weren't taught that they weren't, you know, no one was saying that no one was saying, hey, you, you know, you need to look at how you're living your life in this world, not just the big sins, quote unquote, but everything else in life. Jordan is no stranger to this subject. He grew up in Anaheim, California, the home of Disneyland. He was a pastor's son and so grew up in the church, but everything about his life was driven by the world. He was obsessed with pleasure, obsessed with entertainment, movies, sports, food, everything to feed the flesh. Once his sexual sin started, it completely dominated his life for years. He left the church and was gone for a long time. When he came back to the church, he continued in sexual sin and did not cut himself off from worldly influences. We asked him how that worked out for him. <laughs> not very well. Um, it didn't work out. Um, I couldn't justify both um, my sin and going to church at some point in the, you know, um, after being in my sin for about a decade, I just, and living the double life, you know, going to church, being a Sunday school teacher, being a youth director, leading church camps and stuff like that, and yet being fully engrossed in not just my sexual sin, but just myself, you know, just myself, life, drinking, partying, buying clothes, but whatever, you know, just spending money, just irresponsibly, just doing what I wanted to do. It just came to the point where it was like, okay, either I can keep living this double life or just go headlong into my sin. And I just chose my sin. I just wanted my sin more than more than I wanted God. And um, and yet, you know, throughout the year, the next three decades, I mean, I would still profess to be a Christian. And even in my sin to some of my drinking buddies, I would give I would give them a Bible. What? <laughs> That's ridiculous. You know, I mean, what kind of testimony did I have? I had none. And so, uh, yeah, I just I couldn't I couldn't do it. Um, but when I came back to church in 2005 and then came on staff in 2007 um, and was on staff for three years before my sin got exposed again, um, yeah, I was able to cultivate a double life again. And um, I felt like if I just repented and kept repenting that God would would honor that, but yet I wasn't denying my flesh. And what is the inevitable result of being utterly worldly in our hearts while maintaining the fake Christian veneer? 
I mean, the answer is simple. I mean, it's it's a life life and death question, you know, life with Jesus or life without him. I don't like to be like the hell and brimstone type of guy, um, but the, there's a reality to that. If you continue to, God will not be mocked. You know, he says that in Galatians 6, he who sows to the uh, flesh will reap corruption of the flesh. So if we continue sowing to the, our flesh, then... You know, where are we going to stand on Judgment Day? You know, were we really ever Christians if we can continually do things that are so displeasing to the Lord or not glorifying Him and actually pointing people away from the Lord? A real Christian life is possible. There is real life in relationship to Jesus Christ, and it is abundant life. Jordan finishes our time together by giving testimony of what life is like for him now. No longer married to this world, this is what life is like, wed by faith to Jesus Christ. Man, it's so hard to um, talk about it in something that's tangible that people can really grasp onto. Um, Revelations 21, where it says, when we see him face to face, he'll wipe away every tear. There'll be no pain, no sorrow, um, no more striving. Uh, Man, what's something to look forward to? You know, if you come to Jesus, you know, all who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There is rest for our souls. You know, his yoke is easy, his burden is life. If we will only submit ourselves and humble ourselves and allow him to guide us and direct us that there is rest. And, you know, it says in John, you know, uh, the fullness of his joy, he wants to complete our joy. He wants to make it full. And I always thought joy was an emotion. Joy is not an emotion like happiness. Joy is something much deeper and much more profound than any emotion can ever describe. Joy in the Lord and making that joy complete is a knowledge and an assurance and a confidence in who the Lord is, what he's done for you, what the cross means, all of that. Um, And I have that joy now, whereas before I was tossed to and fro um, like a wave because I was uh, um, just guided by my emotions. And um, the Lord wants to give us life and life abundantly. You know, it's John 10.10. Thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, and I came that they might have life and life abundantly. And it's it really is when you're talking about, okay, I can either choose Jesus or try this whole Jesus and the world too. Well, it's going to be life, life abundantly if you follow God. But if you choose to marry yourself to the world or try to have both, and Jesus says very clearly that you can have both, that you're going to allow Satan to kill, steal, and destroy And it really is, you know, um, that eternal weight of glory that we're going to receive when we um, go to heaven and when we live with Jesus in eternity. And it seems so nebulous. I was thinking about this earlier. It does seem so, so nebulous. But when you come into his rest, when you finally surrender, when you... Um, finally admit your weakness and your your inability to do anything on your own. It is that 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and 10. His grace is sufficient. You know, 
Um, his strength is perfected in our weakness. You know, I when I am weak, I am strong. It's like when we understand that we just cannot do it, that we do need to deny ourselves, that we do need to be as uh, Peter and James and Paul said, that we are bond servants, that we are completely surrendered to the Lord, no dreams, ambitions, um, anything of our own, but completely allowing the Lord, the Holy Spirit to indwell us and guide and direct us. There's just so much that God wants to give us and give to his church. His, he is longing for his church to surrender and separate themselves from the world so he can give them the fullness of who he is and give them peace and rest and and joy and boldness and creativity and all of these things, all these different facets of Jesus and the Lord that he wants to give the church if only we will start denying ourselves, if we will say, no longer um, I, but Christ who lives within me. So the root cause of sexual sin isn't what you thought it was. It's not just an addiction to images or to the dopamine high in your brain. The root cause to this sin, to all sin, is pride. Pride leads to delusion, delusion to selfishness, selfishness to rebellion, rebellion to sin, and the wages of sin is always death. But it all starts with the sin of Satan. It all starts with pride. We're halfway through the 20 truths. Keep listening. There's much more to come. But that's all for today. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs and powerful teaching materials. Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org.